In 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40, God speaks to us in his word. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if, you are and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would not spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she, wish, to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys are welcome for a very light reading today and not complicated at all. Hey, it's good to see you. If I haven't met you, my name is Ben. I'm a lead pastor here. Um, growing up, I, uh, I was eight years old when uh, the Michael Keaton Batman movie came out, which I would argue is the best Batman movie, and I'm ready to argue it. Somebody said... Thank you. Everybody that's my age. I was obsessed and obsessed. Man, I don't even know if that's the right word. I probably, if you had, if you had a, a, a clicker and you said, Ben, I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. It denotes a strange thing about your character and your personality. Um, it denotes an obsession. You watched that movie within a year. You watched it a thousand times. And you said 1,000 times. And I would have said, I, don't, I think you shot too low. I probably watched that movie two, 3,000 times, man. Every time I got a chance, I was watching that specific movie. I got obsessed. Halloween was coming up. And I said to myself, my little eight-year-old mind, this is my chance. I've struggled, eight years old, I've struggled to figure out what is my purpose in life. And now I think I finally got it. Oak Grove, Louisiana, if there's one thing I know, this town needs a hero. All 1,700 people, Oak Grove needs a hero. And I had not known why I was born until now. 
Now I know I'm about to get a Batman costume and I'm going to get the best one. And that's going to be, that's going to be the release. That's going to be the album release of the crime-fighting guy from down the street on Elm Street. That was the name of my street, by the way, Elm Street. I kid you not. So costume, boy, mask, cape. I went into my bedroom. I kind of tried it. My mom knew because she had to buy it, which I was upset about. I didn't want anybody else to know because I, I'm Batman now. I'm not Ben. Ben is no longer here. I'm Batman. Come out ready for Halloween. As soon as I walk out into the kitchen, my mom says, oh, don't you look cute? And I said, mom, I'm not cute. This is not a cute situation. This town needs a hero. I'm Batman, stop. And then I thought to myself, I remember having all these thoughts. What's funny is I can't remember like what happened yesterday, but for some reason I remember this. And then I thought to myself, well, okay, my mom, she knows my body type. She lives with me here. It makes sense. She probably knows, but nobody, I told my mom, nobody else can know that this is me. I have to remain secret because you guys will be in danger if they find out that the crime-fighting Cape Crusader, his identity. And my mom was like, okay. <laughs> so then I was like, okay, fine. Mom knows. Let me go on. I'll carry the stupid candy, you know, whatever, pumpkin. But I don't care about candy. Tonight is not about candy, mom. Tonight is about Batman. <laughs> so sure enough, go to the first house. I remember a lady across the street from me. She said the thing that it just, I'll never forget it. She goes, oh, don't you look so cute. Who is that? Oh, that's Ben. I was like, golly, you're not supposed to know. And I said, okay, that's one. Went to the next house. And one after another, they all said the same thing, those crushing words, and there's still crime in that town today because people could not figure out, man. They say, oh, that's Ben. How cute are you? And I didn't care about the candy. I remember losing it on my neighbors going, I don't care about the candy. This holiday so stupid. This town needs a hero. I literally said that. Went back to my house devastated, freaking out. Don't care about your candy. Don't care about the Halloween. Don't care about holidays at all. This, my identity, my plan is ruined. And forever you guys are going to still have crime in this town because you could not accept that I was Batman. It's so interesting. I know it's such a silly story. That is a true story, by the way. And people that really know me are like, yeah, I could see him being that obsessed with that. I'm telling you the story because of this. It's so interesting to think back. I remember that as being the worst Halloween, the way I felt. I remember feeling like, man, this is a waste, my whole identity. I've been, I've been trying to figure out who I am leading up to it. Now I have the costume to put on. And if I had just had the right perspective, if I had just said, okay, Halloween is a holiday where everybody dresses up. It's, one, it's not a big deal. I'm not actually Batman. He's not actually Spider-Man. And you get candy, and it's a done deal, and you appreciate it. If I had done that, I would have loved Halloween. If my perspective had been right, I would have actually had fun and not seen it as a total loss of identity. The reason I'm telling you that silly story is because in 1 Corinthians 7, although there's some weird language in here, and we got to work through it, in 1 Corinthians 7, and really all of 1 Corinthians and the New Testament, Paul is telling a church that has totally lost their identity. He's trying to get them to see right. Their perspective is messed up. And you know what it is? 
Their perspective is in all the stuff that's happening around them. They're asking questions about, should I get divorced? What about sex outside of marriage? What about worshiping other idols? What about commitment and calling? And now we've arrived at this part of chapter 7, which is known as the singleness part of the Bible, where Paul is going to be, he's been addressing married people, people that want divorce, divorced people, all kinds. And it all, now it's singleness. It all comes back to the same thing. We have to get our perspective in check. He wants them to see from an eternal perspective. Because when we look at things without just the here and now dominating our worldview, when we look at things through the right perspective, then all of a sudden our marriage changes, our lives change, our singleness changes the way that we put on a Batman costume. It changes. Without healthy perspective, here's the irony is that we cannot have healthy lives. The other irony is this. We cannot come to Jesus and have our perspective changed simply because we want to have a healthy life now. It takes all of us laying down all of our life and looking at our marriage and looking at our singleness through the lens of this is about Jesus. That's what it's about. Otherwise, we don't actually survive anything. What Paul says, jumping down, is this. In verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. Now, here's where a lot of you, when we were reading Scripture, probably got a little sideways and thought, well, that's interesting. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul says, let's talk about wives, marriage, relationships, sex, mourning and rejoicing, emotions, goods, material stuff, and world, cultural satisfaction. Paul tells us your perspective is off. Would Paul say to a man that you shouldn't act like you're married now? Why would he say that? He's the same guy that wrote Ephesians 5. We know Paul loves marriage. Would he say that you shouldn't have emotions? No, Paul would say get your emotions in check. He's the same one that wrote in Ephesians 3, I pray that you will be strengthened in your inner man. He also wrote in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Culture changes every 10 minutes, Paul says. It can't satisfy. Stuff we own or stuff we want, as soon as we get it, you ever notice this? I remember this about being a kid. I was like, man, every single Christmas rolled around every birthday. Two times a year, I could finally get the one thing that would satisfy my soul completely from here on out. How many of y'all made pleads with Jesus growing up? You tell him, Jesus, I will. You won't believe how perfect I am from this time forth. If you could just get me this one transformer. Culture changes every 10 minutes, can't satisfy stuff that we want, stuff that we get. As soon as we get it, not satisfied. Emotions aren't to be avoided, they're to be surrendered, but I pray that you be strengthened in your inner man. 
In and of themselves, they can't satisfy. When surrendered to Jesus, they help us worship him. And then marriage. The four things that Paul lists here. Culture, stuff, emotions, and marriage cannot satisfy outside of Jesus. Marriage is a buzzsaw. The only way it can actually fulfill its purpose is to be less about yourself and more about Jesus. Today, in particular, Paul is talking to the unmarried person. And he's going to tell them true satisfaction comes from a healthy perspective. Marriage doesn't fulfill, emotions don't, stuff doesn't, culture doesn't, Christ does. And when our perspective is lined up with eternal realities, then we start to live as satisfied people who know how to see past our nose in these present troubles and towards the reality that we will never actually die. If you could go back and tell eight-year-old Ben, the Batman costume's great. You ain't Batman. Just enjoy the day. Just enjoy it. Eat the Reese's peanut butter cups. Don't be mad at the people that give it to you. So Paul is speaking to singles. And here's how I know it. Here's what he says. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. We know that he's talking to singles because in a lot of ways, in multiple ways in 1 Corinthians, Paul lets us know who he's talking to by this phrase, now concerning this person. He says, now concerning the betrothed, which literally translates to virgin, but culturally speaking would mean those who are not bound to a relationship. He says, in view of this present distress, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. We need to look at what does he mean by in view of this present distress? Is it just context for that day? Is it just maybe Paul's talking about what's happening in the first century? Because they were under intense persecution, no doubt about it. Nero, lots of people. Nero was crazy. We talked about it when we went through our series on Mark, how he would kill Christians for fun. He would put them on poles and light them on fire to light up his parties. He was a terrible person. They were facing that type of persecution. Also, Jerusalem was about to fall. Was Paul making a prophetic notion towards that in light of this present distress? Well, the answer is this, yes. But does that mean it's now null and void of 2023, which I've heard some guys preach and some guys say? No. You know why? Because the Bible, all of it is written by God. He's not ever surprised by what happens in 2023. It's not actually like God is saying, man, I didn't think y'all would make it this far. What is written then, and this is the only book that God's the only one that can write a book like this. What was written then actually applies in the same way with every bit of propensity to us today. It's context then, but it's also context for us now in light of this present, in view of this present distress. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Pretty straightforward here. We already learned throughout chapter 7 when they were asked the question, should I get divorced for absolutely no reason? Paul just simply would answer them with no. <laughs> no. Stay committed. Stay married. Marriage is a lifetime. There are reasons biblically, but 
You're looking for a reason. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Again, this is the same man who loves marriage. God wrote through Paul, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You cannot write that if you don't have a high view, a godly view of marriage. Marriage is good, Paul would say. What does he mean? If you're free from a wife, do not seek a wife. I think what's important in these texts is this word, seek. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. That word seek is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew when he said, this is so profound, Jesus is talking to disciples in the crowd around him about anxiety. And he tells them, you worry about tomorrow. You don't even know what today. Tomorrow's got enough trouble. You don't know what today brings. Look at the birds. I feed them. Look at the lilies. I clothe them and feed them. They don't worry. Be like them. And right in the middle of that, here's what Jesus says. And he uses this word seek. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. <clears throat> Paul is speaking to singles. And he's telling them what Jesus told them, because the Bible is written by the same God. Stop seeking, if you're single, stop seeking satisfaction in a spouse. If you're married, stop seeking satisfaction in a spouse. If you're dating, stop seeking satisfaction in a spouse. It doesn't come. There is one way that we can be satisfied. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Singleness is about satisfaction, the same as marriage. And no, I'm not talking, listen to me. If you're single in the room, or if you're married, I'm not talking about the whole thing that we've learned a thousand times that you can read in any book on singleness at any Christian bookstore, which is like, well, you just need to be satisfied with Jesus. Like Jesus is a consolation prize. A lot of people, single people in the room are like, I'm so tired of hearing that. <laughs> what do you mean be satisfied in Jesus? I'm lonely. Jesus is not here with me. I'm telling you, according to Paul, according to me in my life, according to the word of God, satisfaction does not come when you find someone to marry. You can marry the best person that's ever lived. They ain't going to be Jesus. They need a savior. You understand what I mean? Satisfaction comes from him. It doesn't come from trying to find the one. And I'm talking about ultimate joy in marriage and singleness because the goal is the same. It's perspective. Eternity in Jesus. When you come to realize that marriage doesn't last, it doesn't. There's one institution that lasts, by the way. This is why I preach it red-faced. This is why I've given my life to it. The church is the institution that lasts in eternity. There's not another institution that lasts. Marriage has a purpose. It's to point you to God in Christ. That's what it's for. 
And that someday when Jesus returns and restores new heavens and new earth, marriage will have done its job and it won't need to be here anymore. Marriage doesn't last, singleness doesn't last. What lasts is the manifold wisdom of God on earth, the church, us knowing and worshiping Jesus. So let's talk about how we live with an eternal view in singleness. Married people, I know, and there's a lot of you in the room, a lot more of you than there are us. I know it could seem tempting to just straight up check out in this moment, but please perk up because I think this is not primarily a message about singleness. This is a message for all of us today. So let's jump in. Let's talk about singleness. If I were to ask you, what is your view of singleness? Maybe you would have a few different responses. Maybe you would say singleness is good. If I'm single, I love my freedom. I love my autonomy. I love quote unquote play in the field. Or maybe you think it's bad. I'm bored. I'm lonely. Marriage will fix that. Dating is terrible. <laughs> single people in the room said, thank you so much. You probably didn't even know you were going to give yourself away like that, but that's amen with you. <clears throat> Maybe it's not just good and bad. Maybe it's just a mixed bag. You think, I'm married, but sometimes I wish I was single and had more freedom. Or I wonder if there's a better fit for me out there, which is a lie, by the way. The person that you're with is the one because you're married to them. I'm single, and it depends on the day whether or not I want to stay this way. I want to have someone around to appease my loneliness and insecurities, but then I want to get rid of them when they're annoying. It's good or it's bad or it's just a mixed bag. There are stigmas. This is the problem in this part of the world. There are stigmas surrounding singleness. And as we try to broach this topic, it brings us to a weird collision between the Bible Belt and culture. Churches' stigmas and cultural stigmas. So let me just compare and contrast these. In culture, the stigma surrounding singleness are this. Culture tends to be pessimistic towards marriage. Culture often views marriage as caving in, and it pressures you to stay single. Culture views marriage as second best, and culture often idolizes independence and freedom. Well, that's culture. Pendulum goes the other way with the church, per usual. Church has stigmas around singleness too. It's this, the church tends to be pessimistic towards singleness. The church often views long-term singleness as failure. Church pressures you to get married. Church views singleness as second rate. And church often idolizes marriage, family, and quote-unquote leaving a legacy, which is so interesting because a lot of the Pot County Christian couples that I encounter they idolize their own marriage. They have an idea about what a Pot County Christian couple should look like. They should probably go to church or at least talk about God. They should say the right things. They should look the part. But in reality, it's like there's not much God in them. Their life is about an ideal. It's a costume. It's perspective. There's stigmas for both the church and culture. Paul comes in 1 Corinthians and Paul blows everybody's mind, and especially the first century, but also us today. Here's what he says. 
Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Somebody say gift. Each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good. Say it with me. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. What in the world? To the first century church, this would have been crazy. Paul calling singleness a gift. And you know why? Because all of their identity would have been wrapped up in if they were married, who they were married to, how many kids they have, or if they have kids. Especially to a woman in that day. No husband means no identity. No kids means ultimate shame. Why are you even here? And Paul comes and says, it's a gift. That is a direct 180. So the first thing I want you to see is that singleness is a gift. Here's a statement from another first century rabbi in regard to singleness. Any man who has no wife is no proper man, for it is said, male and female, he created them. Rabbi Joshua confirms. Do not say, I shall not get married, but get married, produce sons and daughters, and so increase procreation in the world. Any man who has no wife is no proper man, first century rabbi says. Paul says singleness is a gift. Why does he say that? Why is singleness a gift? Some of the single people in the room, I guarantee you, they're thinking, if singleness is a gift, somebody needs to give me the receipt. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take this back and get something else. Well, there's a reason why Paul says it's a gift. And I want you to see a couple of things around that. First is this. We all have grass is greener mentality. An eternal perspective absolutely kills the grass is greener on the other side mentality. Verse 25, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Pretty up and down, pretty straightforward. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that, Paul says. Listen, marriage is a good and godly thing. It's good for a man or woman to desire marriage. However, when your desire for marriage outweighs your desires for Jesus, we're in trouble. Fill in the blank there. When your desire for anything, when your desire for kids, when your desire for job, when your desire for whatever, fill in the blank, outweighs desire for Jesus, it's no wonder that we get lopsided and we start worshiping the thing that we don't have instead of worshiping Jesus. And if our perspective were right, we're set up right to look toward Jesus, then actually all of these things would be healthy for us. Eternal perspective would tell us that a spouse is there to be loved and served by us. And that all the things that come with it, literally for better or for worse, within biblical constructs, they're being used by a sovereign God to shape you and preserve you to eternity. Paul says it, those who marry will have worldly troubles, I will spare you that. The problem is there are challenges to both being married and single. Some challenges are this. For single people, there's the challenge of sex. We live inside a culture that overemphasizes and worships sex. It becomes a core value of any relationship or any person. 
It's a non-negotiable ultimate need like food, water, or air. Therefore, when Jesus teaches, when all of the Bible and all the New Testament has clear teachings that sex is a byproduct of covenant commitment. It is a benefit of covenant. Sex outside of covenant is just you trying to get the benefits of the covenant, which is actually sin. What I mean is this, sex outside of marriage is sin. So in a culture that worships sex, especially in the Corinthian church, that worships it, that says bodies don't matter, which we've learned they absolutely do, that says soul and body is disconnected, which we learned they absolutely aren't, then sex is just a thing. It just becomes a thing that you do for a release. And Paul comes in and blows that up. And in a culture where we're faced with challenges, there's a challenge for singles with sex. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then you cannot engage in any sort of sex outside of the context of marriage. God, listen to me. I don't have time today to preach a sermon on sex. We've done it multiple times. God invented this thing, but he invented it for our good and his glory. In both of those things, outside of the context of marriage, it neither comes to our good or for his glory outside of it. Jesus lived the most fulfilled, joyful, non-anxious life of anybody ever. Jesus died a virgin. It's vital to realize that it is possible. It's actually a beautiful life if you're single in the room. But it's also important to point out that single people are not the only ones that face challenges around sex and sexuality. If you're married, same challenges. Challenges staying sexually faithful to one person, pursuing their needs, serving them in every way, of course, not talking about just sex. In a culture that overly values sex and sexuality, this puts tremendous strain on many marriages. Marriage doesn't make those struggles go away. Almost every marriage has regularly occurring conflict around sex or money. And there are other challenges for singles. The challenge of commitment. Singles, the challenge of loneliness. The challenge of worldly troubles or anxiety about the future, both in marriage and singleness. And Within single community, there's one that sticks out for me as a single man. It's the challenge of selfishness. I don't, I don't want to be, but I just the fact that I don't have a spouse means that I'm thinking about myself a lot. It also means that I talk to my dog way too much, probably. I don't know why he hasn't learned English yet. It doesn't make sense to me. John Stott's one of my favorite theologians and has passed away and a great pastor. And John Stott uh, was a single man, his life. He wrote this. He said, apart from sexual temptation, the greatest danger, which I think we face as singles, is self-centeredness. We may live alone and have total freedom to plan our own schedule with nobody else to modify it or even give us advice. If we are not careful, we may find the whole world revolving around ourselves. The challenge of selfishness. It's interesting how you can be married and have those same things apply to you as well. The whole world evolving around yourself. Then there's the challenge of misconceptions. Married people sometimes think that singles sit around eating Reese's and binge watching Netflix and say things like, You must have so much free time on your hand. How many times have I heard that? 
or that single people have no anxiety or worry that they can and that they do do whatever they want when they want. Statements like, why are you still single? <laughs> or you can't be too picky. When are you going to get married, etc.? Not helpful and they imply that something is wrong with us or wrong with our decision making. These things make singles feel less than and invisible in the church and we have work to do as a church to change that narrative. It perpetuates a ridiculous us versus them mentality when married people, all of a sudden, you've been single your whole life, you all of a sudden don't know how to relate to a single person. You've been single for decades, mostly at least two decades, and now you, can't, you just cannot figure out this person's from another planet to you because they're single. Been there, been the recipient of that. There's six ways that we can actually perpetuate this view or make single people feel invisible in church. One, by believing they have ulterior motives. That's why they're single. They got something else going on. They don't, they're too selfish. Two, by conveying a message that singleness is a sin. I'm real about this. Implying that the only reason someone is single just has to be because they have ulterior motives and want to date around, whatever that means. Three, by believing they're doing something wrong or something is wrong with them. Four, by assuming that they are involved in some sort of sexual sin. Or five, by conveying the message that sanctification only comes through marriage. It ain't true. Married people, listen to me. I'm your brother and your pastor. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. If you follow Jesus, he is gonna do the work to sanctify you in your life. If you're married, of course he's gonna use marriage. If you're not married, he's going to use other stuff. Both married and singles have unique challenges. It's both wrong and unhelpful for either a married person or a single person to assume that one is easy and one is hard. They're both good in their own way and hard in their own way. That's why we need perspective. We need eternal perspective, which leads me to my last thing. Bottom line is this. Paul says it so clear. How do you live as a single person following Jesus? How do you live as a married person following Jesus? This way. It's the only way. Live in full devotion to Jesus. Everything about you. See it all from an eternal lens. If I follow Christ, which I realize not everybody in here does, but if you do, if you signed up to say, okay, I'm gonna follow Christ, I'm gonna deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. That means that every part of your life is about you following him in full devotion. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion to the Lord means that as a single or married person, we look past our circumstances. We spend ourselves. Brooks Waldron says it this way. Marriage was designed to show off Christ's love and devotion to the church. So good. Singleness was designed to show off the church's love and devotion to Christ. Singleness is uniquely designed to showcase his, the sufficiency and superiority of God. Live in full devotion to the Lord. That means in everything. That means in our relationships. That means in our jobs. And if you're single, that means, yes, in your dating life. I didn't even have time to talk about dating. I, I'll give you my snapshot. You should date. If you're single, if you want to be married, you should date. Don't sin. 
date and don't sin. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Verse 36 kind of leads me to that. It says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But listen to this. Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Paul says, having his desire under control, and how is it that I determine that? In my heart. In my heart. Because if I'm living in full devotion to the Lord and I'm dating, then in my heart that means that I see everybody I encounter that is a Christian as a brother or a sister. So men, I'm a man, I'm talking to you. I'm, I know your type, because I am you. I would say it this way. You date sisters who are made in the image of God. Their dad upholds the universe by the word of his power. This isn't like one of those scenes where you go over and you're about this prom time and the dad's just kind of making fun. He's cleaning the shotgun on the porch or whatever. I'm not even talking about that. This, this type of, of dad pales in comparison. He pales in comparison to who God is. Upholds the universe by the word of his power. So do you know what that means? Hear me. Men, I'm talking to you as a man. That means this. That you honor her. And date but honor, she's your sister. Be honorable. Be normal. Don't be all weird. You don't have to show up with a three-piece suit in every date you go to. You don't got to go back all the way to the 1950s. But you should be honorable. You should think to yourself, man, this woman was made in God's image. I'm going to be honorable to her. One thing that I always lived by was, and I'm not, this might seem like I've gotten, I'm 41, I've dated. This might seem like I've totally cornered the market and figured out how to do I have not. But one of the things that has been sort of struck on me is I, want, I may get married to this girl, I may not, but I sure enough want to be able to shake the hand of the man that she does marry. Now think about what all would have to happen in order for you to do that. When they get married, shake their hand and say, I see some dads in the room that have daughters going, amen. <laughs> Preach, how about just nobody ever date again, some of these dads. I actually got to do that recently. Uh, uh, a woman that I love very much, sister, love, like totally love and respect. And, uh, and we dated, didn't work out, and she got married and, and one of the best dudes in, our, in one of our congregations. I got to shake his hand. He's actually a good buddy of mine. Every man in this room should treat women like that, like a sister. They're not a fling. They're not your insecurity boost. And the same goes for you, women. Same goes for you. Treat those men like brothers. I, again, I can't even get into all what that means. I'm telling you for sure, don't be weird. Don't be super churchy weird. I don't know how to explain it to you. We could talk afterwards. You know, this is not a cult. Be normal, date. Just don't sin. That's why Paul says, in your heart, follow the Holy Spirit in your dating life. Dating in and of itself is a whole other topic. So lastly, I want to leave you with a few things. What this means in practice is this. If you're single, this is what it means. Stop wasting your life. 
And I mean that. Listen to me. I'm your brother. I'm your pastor. Stop wasting your life. Give your life away. Spend your life. Stop wasting it, waiting on somebody to show up so you can finally start living. You are not here to be married. That's not why you're on this earth. <clears throat> parents in the room, you're not here to be parents. That is not why you're on this earth. You're here for eternity. Your kids, all of that. You have a job to do to submit them to Jesus while you follow Jesus. Spend your life, serve the church, be a great neighbor. Work hard, treat people well, share the gospel, single people. Give your time and resources. I mean both of those things, your time and your resources to the kingdom of God. And do you know how he's bringing his kingdom on earth? Through the church. Messy and all, crazy and all. Give it away, give your life away. Have people over, cook them meals. Share your home, change flat tires, buy food for someone, pray for people. Worship like crazy, be faithful and true to your word, be steady in God's church. <clears throat> Don't try to play God over the church or over people's lives. Devote yourself to the body, single people. Now, is there any body in the room, is there any married person in the room that would say that that list only applies to single people? It does apply to them, but it applies to you too. Full devotion to the Lord. When our perspective is set on eternity in Christ, the way that we see ourselves the way that we see our relationships, money, stuff, and the way that we see the world come under submission to Jesus and what we get in return is this. It's true satisfaction. I think to eight-year-old Ben, it's like, my goodness, if somebody would have just told you, I probably wouldn't have believed them if they did, but if somebody was told me, you're not actually Batman, Batman ain't actually real, it's gonna be okay, go get some candy, we're gonna have a good time. I'd have been a lot happier at the end of that night. Last thing, Jesus tells a parable about a treasure in a field and a pearl. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Single people, I would tell you this. A spouse is not a treasure in the field. It's not. There is nothing that compares. And some of us today are waiting, we're withholding ourselves so that we sell everything that we have to buy something that's not even worth the price. There is one treasure, it is Jesus. It is not your husband or your wife, it's not your future husband or your wife or potential of it. So I'm inviting you, sell everything you have, but sell it for the pearl of great price for actual treasure, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give it all up for Jesus, he is it. There's nothing else worth it. Listen to me. There's nothing else worth it. Jesus is it. He's the treasure of everything. Marriage, singleness, careers, kids, and all of life. Today as we come to the table and take communion, I want to invite you to get your perspective right. Rewire your brain. And that's what this table does. It helps us get our perspective right. <coughs> We come and take the bread and the wine and we remember how much we've forgotten that Jesus satisfies the human soul. He satisfies the human soul. If you're a Christian in the room, if you've been baptized into the faith, you're welcome to take communion with us. If you're not,
it doesn't make any, I would ask you to not take communion, but it also makes no sense for you to take communion. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't amount to much. You need the conflict of, I'm not in this faith yet. You need that. It's just bread and not good bread and not good juice and not good wine, and you're not missing out on anything. It actually requires faith. It's a meal of faith. It's the meal of the covenant family of God. And if that's you today, come repent, come remember, come change your perspective. Let's stand together.